Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Justine Harmon. Justine is a journalist, podcaster, and the current host of the podcast, Killed. Killed is a podcast about journalism that gets killed for a variety of reasons. Season two from AudioChuck is currently ongoing. It's ranked among the most downloaded podcasts for both seasons one and season two. We'll talk about that project, but first we'll talk about Justine. She's formerly senior editor at Elle magazine and features director at Glamour. You can find pieces she's done on actresses such as Cynthia Nixon, Anne Hathaway, Elizabeth Banks, and Jessica Chastain. She's made several other narrative nonfiction podcasts a couple of true crime ones, one about the history of Victoria's Secret. She's done a wide range of both writing and podcasting. That's a lot. Hi, Justine. Thanks for joining me. Hi. Oh, my God. I sound so interesting when you say it like that. It doesn't, <laughs> there are, you know, deep wells of, or periods of time where I'm like, what do I do? Do I do anything? Do I have a, like, do I have a job? <laughs> so... Well, it, it seems like you do, you do quite a lot. And I'd be curious to know where, does, where did it all begin? The biggest influence was probably my older sister. I have an older sister. We're nine years apart and she worked at Vanity Fair in the late nineties. I was probably in middle school then or yeah, because we're nine years apart and it was her first job out of college. And she just told me about what she got to do. She got, I remember she spoke with Edward Furlong and Omar Epps, two very nineties, you know, talent or nineties actors, but I just thought that was like the coolest thing ever to watch a movie like the Terminator and then get to talk to someone who was in it. I I just couldn't wrap my head around that. It's not like I'm from some small town or anything. I grew up in DC and my mom was a politician. So it wasn't, I just was like, that sounds like so much fun. And I just, I don't know. I worship my sister, I guess a little bit. So that sort of planted the seed, but my mom was always a huge magazine reader herself. We always had like a lot of um, subscriptions that came to the house. And I also collected milk ads when I was like in middle school. So I was always flipping through the pages of the magazine to find the milk ads, especially like the rare ones. So I would go to anyone's house and scavenge their magazine piles. Like my uncle, I would go raid all his old Bon Appetit. So I don't know. I just like always, they were such a matter of fact for me growing up. It's so funny. Now I was at this weekend, I was at like a bodega type thing here in LA. I don't think they call them bodegas, but whatever. And there was like one magazine on the magazine rack. There was one popular mechanics or something. And I was just like, what? Like they just, I don't know. They, like I said, they were a fact of life. They were a very big deal. And um, I liked, I always wanted to be connected to them. I, I thought they were very powerful. So walk us through some of the biggest highlights from your career path. I kind of got a later start a little bit in my dream field. That's another part of it is that I was denied for a long time, which just made my interest grow because I'm a masochist. But I graduated from college in 2006, which was kind of a crummy time to be looking for a job, but I really wanted to work in magazines. So I'd had some internships. I took another internship after graduating from college, unpaid, which was crazy. And I couldn't get a job as an editorial assistant. I tried and I tried. I was more in like the fashion track then, to be honest. So I wanted to be like a fashion assistant who sits in the closet and checks the clothes in and out for the shoots. 
I don't know why I wanted to do that. Maybe probably because the devil wears Prada. And I don't know my sister, <laughs> but she, she didn't do that either. She was the managing editor's assistant. So that's like paper pushing, but I guess I misunderstood. <laughs> but my first job was actually in PR. I worked in PR, celebrity PR, sort of assisting a publicist who had clients like Mary Kate and Ashley Olson and Tate Diggs was one, Rose Byrne. It was like a crazy random group. And I did that for two years. And then I went back and interned again because I was like, God damn it, I still really want to do this. And I then I got a job at People Magazine, finally. So I was freelance assisting for a stylist who had really amazing celebrity clients. She passed away, unfortunately, but she was the coolest. Her name was Annabelle Tolman. And through Annabelle, I met a lot of interesting people, but I think I also started blogging at that time. And ha I had like a blog spot or whatever it was. And I put together some recent clips from that and submitted that to Time Inc. And that's actually what got me my interview there. So that was pretty enterprising. I think it was early days for blogging. And so that's what happened there. I finally got this job at People in 2010. And I was assisting a man named Mark Golan, who actually was the editor-in-chief of Details way back when. And he ran all of their lifestyle and fashion websites for Time Inc.'s digital presence. So people.com, instyle.com, ew.com. And that was where I first got started was at Time Inc. So I mentioned celebrity profiles. You've mentioned them too, and you've done a fair number of them. Yeah. And I was reading one in particular. You did a profile of Jessica Chastain recently. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say it's not your typical celebrity piece. There were some things in it that she brought up that I think I wasn't necessarily expecting to read. And I'm yeah. guessing that maybe you weren't expecting to, <laughs> to receive yeah. when you were asking questions. What's the prep for an interview like that like? And what's the experience of doing an interview like that like? Right. So because I've had so much experience with sort of talent and celebrity just on both sides of it, most of my jobs have interfaced with famous people in some way. You know, I've done like fireside chats for summits. And, um, uh, you know, I was at, at Glamour when I was the features director, every celebrity cover, I either edited it or wrote it or signed it, or, you know, I was always had my hands in that as well. So this story was kind of like a last minute thing. My friend, Sally Holmes, who actually is now the editor in chief of InStyle, but for a few years, she was the editor of Marie Claire and she asked me if I would do it. I think it was like three days before. And I was like, I would love to. Um, I'm a big Jessica Chastain fan. So my prep was sort of, I got a couple screeners of her amazing TV series that hadn't come out yet. Tammy and George, George and Tammy, about Tammy Wynette. And I watched that. I rewatched my favorite, which is Molly's Game. I, you know, read a few profiles in competing kind of women's titles. It's so funny, like you forget how many of these people do. So like every single thing under the, or, you know, under the sun about Jessica Chastain that you could write has been written. So I sort of, that takes the pressure off in a way. I'm not gonna come up with some, I just sort of was like, well, we'll just see if we get on, I guess. So we met at like a very nice hotel kind of near my house, which was amazing. And we sat in a room downstairs with no windows and there was a publicist there for a little bit and then she left she was cool 
and we just talked like it, you know it's it's it it seems like it would be such a fabricated phony inauthentic thing to sit there with I had like an hour maybe with her and you used to have more time and they would have to give you that access and it would be different but I feel like this is pretty standard now you just get like an hour and I don't know we just talked and she was cool and easy to talk to and but when she brought up the stuff I imagine you're you're referencing the Iran stuff she brought up women in Iran and the treatment thereof right I you know I was happy I was happy that she wanted to share something with me I thought it was a clever way to get a lot of attention on something that she wasn't able to get attention for she had said she'd previously been on morning TV and tried to bring it up or was wearing the shirt with a, with a slain woman's name. I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but, and they, they either didn't talk about it or they cut it or whatever it was. And so I took it as sort of like a challenge, like will a women's magazine be willing to broach that topic and to say it so plainly. And Sally was totally cool with it. And I think it probably worked out just the way she'd hoped it would. So I think it was a positive thing all around. I was it, it didn't, it wasn't, you know, she said it would be considered impolitic or edgy for her to share a political standpoint, but she talks about politics all the time. She's really vocal about those things in a lot of her interviews. And I think it's, you know, intentional. So I wanted to highlight that as well, because that's part of, I think, what makes her so intensely interesting. Yep. And the, and that gave you something that made the piece stand out certainly yeah yeah it i mean it was the most noticeable thing you know out of nowhere for her to be like i've had a margarita so i'm going to say something yep. controversial i was like thank god <laughs> say anything like, All right. you know. so so you've done a pretty broad range of stories as a magazine writer yeah beyond celebrity profiles which i mentioned there's also personal experience pieces you did one quite bluntly on why you did have a C-section. There are other types of personal experience pieces. There are other celebrity profiles. There are mm-hmm. other types of stories that you've done. How do you come up with your story ideas? It's <laughs> a good question. I think, you know, what's interesting is that when I was at L, I started at L in 2012 and I worked on the print side for, I cannot remember the breakdown, but for a few years. <clears throat> and then I moved over to L.com and it was like going from you know, working at like a bespoke clock shop where you make like one beautiful timepiece a year to just like franking out watches. So I got very accustomed to tapping like every random vein, everything that happened, anything that was going on in my life. I was like, oh, that's a story. I'm going to use it without any like real care for my future self or (laughs) my husband or, you know, whatever, whatever I was writing about. The C-section thing. Yeah, that, that was a personal piece. It was an emergency C-section. I sort of, you know, beat myself up over it because there's a lot of, there's a lot of chatter before you have a baby about how every woman should be able to bear a child of some ungodly weight. And I wasn't able to do it. And I, I was really disappointed. And so I think that that's an example of like a good, you know, vein to tap into and an experience to share. And I've heard, you know, nice things from people who connected to it, but other stuff was ridiculous, was absolutely insane. I hired a PI to find my crush from when I was like seven. I like, we just did whatever. We did the craziest stuff at that time. I think Hearst was being directed by Troy Young and he finagled, I think a lot more financing than the digital properties at Hearst had ever seen. And so we had a lot of money. 
and we got to take photo shoots and pull off stunts and travel. And I did this thing once with Big Sean, the rapper, where we went to a, he, he, we went to like a Qdoba or a Chipotle and he bought everyone burritos and we were all wearing like wires and had like a secret video cam thing. It was so random. Like we just did the craziest, funnest stuff. And I think that probably doesn't happen as much anymore. And it wasn't even that long ago, but you asked, where do my stories come from? I think ever since then, like the incessant pressure to, we had like KPIs, key performance indicators, you know, like every time we get a review, it's like, well, your stories didn't do that well. You need to come up with something fresh, you know, like it was a lot of stress. So ever since then, I've just been tapped into all kinds of different ideas across the spectrum, but I don't know. I, there's a lot of ideas I don't pursue or they, that don't check out. So that's just like, I, I would say like a small fraction of the crazy ideas that I've had. And I have them a lot all day, everything I read, everything I see. It's exhausting, honestly. I was going to say, are you, are you able to turn it off? <laughs> no. I mean, yeah, no. <laughs> well, all right. That brings us to podcasting. And I mentioned the previous <laughs> podcasts you've done. How yeah. did you first get into podcasting and why is your a studio called 39 Stories? The podcasting kind of came, it was like the one thing in my career that actually came natural, like came to me and was sort of like, do you want to do this? And I was like, I guess, which never happened. The rest of it was me like clawing, clawing for the opportunity. When I was at Glamour, we had a new editor in chief after Cindy Levy left. Her name is Sam Barry. She's still there. And she came from news. And so she wanted us all to have like morning meetings every day and talk about things we'd read. That that was stressful too, <laughs> because I wasn't used to like getting to work at 8 a.m. and being like, I read this killer piece in some esoteric journal. Like that just wasn't my, that that is less, I, I don't know. I can't explain why that didn't, that didn't necessarily jive with the, my, the way my ideas come. I always felt pretty stumped. I never had anything. And one day my friend Liz Egan, who now works at the New York Times Book Review, had said she'd read this piece on people.com about two white women who had driven their six adopted black kids off a cliff in California. And I was like, oh my God, I read that too. And so our editor-in-chief is like out of a movie. She was like, okay, you two work together, get the story. And we were like, okay. So we started putting together a story we found an amazing reporter named Lauren Smiley. And she came on and the three of us sort of like started crafting this narrative that ended up being really one of the longest pieces Glamour ever ran. And it was, you know, this big sweeping investigation into what went wrong and what happened. And somehow this had eluded all of us, but our digital editor at the time, Laurel Pinson was like, oh, you guys should be getting audio in the field. This is a podcast. And we were like, a podcast? That sounds cool. And so because of Condé Nast and the weight they had in the space, all of a sudden we had a partner in, originally it was How Stuff Works, and then they were acquired by iHeart. But with them came an amazing producer who basically taught me and Liz and Lauren how to make this podcast. And the podcast did really well, it was one of the biggest podcasts of the year, it was on the top of the charts for a long time. We ended up going on the Dr. Oz show for it, which was crazy. <laughs> We get, he had like a crime lab at one point and that was like toward the end of his show I guess and we were in the crime lab it was five weeks after I'd had my daughter and I was like in the crime lab with Dr. Oz and that was surreal and that was the first experience I had so when I came up with another idea for a podcast 
and you know, glamour wasn't interested. I sort of had this idea that became the Baron of Botox, and I, I can't. I got connected to someone who worked in podcasts, and I quickly realized I didn't really know anything about the business side of it. Because at Glamour, <laughs> I made this wildly successful podcast, but I was full time. I was on staff, so I never saw a dime from that. There was a there was a documentary that came out of it. I wasn't attached to that. You know, you learn those things quickly. Sure. And so, I got an agent. And that was in 2019. And so I've just been sort of, I left my job at Glamour, I think it was November, 2019, which was kind of crummy timing with the pandemic. But just since there, I have found that I have more opportunities, more green lights, more space to do these stories than not, you know, magazines can't, can't put up the same real estate as eight to 10, 30 minute episodes. I mean, that's, it's a lot of time though, you know, like, it is. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot of air to, it's a lot of space to fill. And so I've always gotten obsessed with one world, one group of characters, one weird thing at a time. I'm not, maybe that's why the digital stuff was hard for me. I'm not so good at hopscotching around and doing all kinds of different things or putting up things that I think are sort of like half-baked or like whatever, quick hit. I wasn't, I wasn't into that. So Podcasts just afford me the opportunity to go and sit, to go absolutely gonzo on one story. And I, I mean, I cherish that. So that's why I do podcast. Why is it called 39 stories? Oh, 39 stories. You know, what's funny about that. There's two reasons. <laughs> well, one is I think I was subliminally influenced. Connie Nast at one point had a content content studio called 23 stories, maybe because they had 23 stories of the World Trade Center. I, I forgot about that. And it is now defunct. But it's sort of a rip on that, I guess. But 39 was my husband's lacrosse number in college. We both went to the University of Pennsylvania. And I think they gave him 39 or my, I hope they did, because that's my whole story here. They gave it to him because they were like, oh, he's not going to be that good. Like all the hot shots had like the single digit numbers, a seven or three or whatever. And he he got 39 and he ended up being a very good player. And then he went on to play professional lacrosse after college. And I just, I don't know, the number has become for us sort of symbolic, like a lucky number. I see 39s everywhere. It's just, it's actually weirdly 313s, which, you know, bad luck, whatever. I don't know. I just think it's a perfect number. So 39, I thought it was cute. 39 stories, like a building, but also telling stories, but I, I'm not original because I kind of ripped it from my former employee by accident. <laughs> I, I thought it would be 39 stories because that was the number of things that you had going on in your head. No, uh, I mean, it, it is. That's probably a better explanation than I sort of stole it. Am I going to get like sued? <laughs> so, so what's the difference in what you wrote, produced it and host then when you were first starting and these other things that you developed compared to what you're doing now with Killed? Mm, killed is sort of an odd duck killed was born from you know my own experience having a story killed and I explore that in episode four of season two it's called the relationship it's about a story I was pursuing about porn moms and if you want to know what a porn mom is you know check out killed um but I just always I've always loved magazines and you know stories and I think I learned by virtue of working in them for 10 years that the thing I liked most about it wasn't so much the glamour or the access, which is helpful when you're a journalist, but I just liked all the people who have the same sort of like itch 
we, I mean, immediately when I got to L and I was on the features team there, there were some really amazing writers and editors we worked with regularly. E. Jean Carroll, who just won a lawsuit against Trump. She was a recurring columnist. We had amazing writers and I was able to, you know, work with them, spend time with them, get to know them on a personal level. And I just, those conversations, that obsession, that, you know, 39 stories-esque mentality. I'm just drawn to the way we spend our time, which is like, you know, stressing out over a story that only we can see. So I wanted to make something that honored that and felt true to what it feels like to want to publish a story so badly, either for personal reasons or for public interest. I mean, those episodes, those are, I, I think, you know, those are sort of like the gateway episodes, the one about the scandal at USC or in the first season, the case against the director, Brian Singer, like those are instances where journalists have found stories that would profoundly change the way people think and behave around certain people. You know, there's laws being broken. Just a lot, those are, the stakes are so high, but I also kind of like when the stakes are low and it's just one person's uphill battle to do a thing. I, I, I'm just juiced by all that. I think it's exciting. So you mentioned some examples. Yeah. There were others. There was one moment where I thought you were going to take down Ira Glass in This American Life. And oh I was my God, I would didn't. never. He could be a murderer. <laughs> I'd kill that I was, story. I was very glad that you didn't, that it no. went in a completely different direction. Yeah. Uh, there was another one. And let's let's chat on this one just for a bit. The Quarterback, season two, yeah. episode three. Mm -hmm. um, what was this about? It was about a a quarterback in the 50s who played for the Pittsburgh Steelers. His name was Henry Ford, and he was one of the first Black quarterbacks at a major university. He played at the University of Pittsburgh, and he eventually got drafted by the Steelers. And according to him and his wife, Rochelle, Henry passed a few years ago, but Rochelle is still with us and remembers it just like it was yesterday. He was kicked off the team for being Black and having a white girlfriend. He you know, Obviously, they knew he was Black, but they found out he had a white girlfriend. And he claims, and Rochelle backs him up, that that's why he was let go. And, you know, he was a really excellent player. There's a ton, a ton. We did a ton of research um, internally at Kill to, you know, corroborate the journalist Abby Haglidge's, Abby Haglidge's account of his prowess. And he really was celebrated and decorated and, you know, a top 10 draft pick. And all of a sudden, he was just off the team. And she found, you know, players he used to play with who were like, yeah, I always wondered what happened to Henry. And he and Rochelle have had a beautiful life and he found other work and became successful and was not bitter about it and just sort of took it on the chin. And he died a few years ago, but he never really, they really never got the story on a national platform about this couple and their love story and what could have been an amazing football career. And the NFL, you know, this is me telling the story that someone else told me about a story they were writing. Like it starts to kind of being John Malkovich, but it, you know, I, as I was told, you know, the NFL pushed back pretty, pretty mightily against the reporting and said, you know, that's not true. And that doesn't honor the way our family, the, the owners of the Steelers behaved at the time. And I think Glamour was just sort of like, whoa, like, this is just supposed to be a package time to a movie. We got to move along. This is getting crazy. And they just changed tack. And uh, Unfortunately, the story didn't get told until now, and I have not heard from the NFL or the Steelers organization 
in any way. So I guess we were able to pull it off and to highlight them and give them a moment. And Rochelle, I, I've spoken to her and she's listened to it and she she said she loved it and it brought her to tears. And it was just a real, and I also love Abby Haglidge, the journalist who found the story to begin with. We've been friends over the years. So it was just awesome to go down that journey with Abby, who's now becoming a lawyer sort of because of it. And you can learn why that's correlated in the episode. But these things, telling a story like this or not telling a story like this, they change the course of people's lives. And I, I'm just fascinated by that. So going back to the Ira Glass thing, we were making light of it before. I felt like that episode from season one, it was called The Blueprint, was instructive. This was about a journalist writing about the history of street names in New York City's Chinatown for an mm -hmm. episode of This American Life. And I say this because without spoiling it, there's a satisfying ending and a lesson within it for journalists about persistence and sticking with the piece. So I'm curious off of that, do you have good examples from your career where you stuck with it on a piece that was not necessarily dead, but on life support that you were able to bring back to life a considerable time later? Mm. I mean, porn moms <laughs> in that it became the genesis or like the the experience that informed this podcast. So it was the catalyst for two seasons of Killed, which I didn't even really think about until I think it was the head of podcasts at Audio Chuck. Her name's Brittany Bigelow. Big ups to Brett. She was sort of like, wait, why are you doing this? Like, what is your deal? And I was like, well, I've had a story killed. It sucks. She was like, well, what was it? And I told her, and she's like, you got to do that as an episode. And in that moment, I was like, you know, I'd already made 14 of these things and it never occurred to me. <laughs> and I was just like, no one's going to care. Like, it's so stupid. Like, it probably got killed because I suck and no other reason. And I was like, that's what this show's about. It's just about you know, wanting something, looking for feedback, trying to do right by yourself, by your subjects, like it is a mind f part in my language. So Audio Chuck, you mentioned uh, mm -hmm. the person who heads it, the woman who heads it. It describes itself as doing advocacy-driven podcasts. Yeah. What do you feel this one is advocating for? Journalists? It's transparency in journalism, yep. like a peek at how the sausage gets made, especially since, you know, we all watch Succession and you know, in season two, episode two, The Town, you kind of see what happens when big organizations bundle local papers and bundle resources, you know, things get lost in the shuffle. And there's like a lot of chatter, I think, and maybe it's reflected in TV and film, but this idea of like integrity in the newsroom and everyone's doing their best to get the good word out. And we're all, there's rules that govern how things work and, you know, ethics and a board of ethics, you know, that's not all really the case. Like, it's just people kind of bumbling around trying to do their best. And, you know, there are different pressures when you work at a Condé Nast or a Hearst. The more senior you are, the more you feel like you're beholden to a company and you, you, it feels good to be a company woman or man to uphold the standards of a place that you don't, you know, you devote so much time to this place. Why wouldn't you want to fight for whatever makes it safe to work there, solvent, I, I think it's not a good guy, bad guy situation. There's a lot of, we're all human. And I'm, I remember reading the book, When Breath Becomes Air, a few years back, about a doctor who talks about, you know, sometimes he's talking to patients and he's like, fuck, I have a ice cream sandwich that's melting at my desk and I just want to put it in the freezer and then I can have this conversation. Like, I think there's a lot of things like that in journalism where 
people make bad calls or miss things, not because they're bad people, but because life is complicated. And I wanted to talk about that. So do you have a sense as to why this podcast resonated with people? Because the numbers that I've seen for it in terms of where it's ranked are, are really, really good. And it's yeah. not like a lot of a lot of what's right what's resonating now is true crime. And this yeah. this isn't true crime, but in a sense it kind of is, with the crime being the killing of a story mm-hmm. and the way that you're able to kind of weave through and tell the story about the killing of a story and then how it's in some cases brought back to life or not. Yeah. I mean, that was always the point, like the double entendre of calling it killed and having it on the audio truck network that primarily does true crime stories. And I've done true crime in the past too. I am not necessarily like a true crime junkie myself. I don't know why I said junkie, crime junkie, I guess, but Ashley, who she's, she, Ashley Flowers runs Audio Chuck and she and I were talking and I pitched her something else. I think that was strictly in the true crime vein. And she was sort of like, eh. And then I was like, okay, well, I have this other idea. What about a, you know, a show called Kills? In each episode, it's a different killed story. And she was like, dude, why didn't you leave with that? So it was always supposed to be a bit cheeky, a bit I, I, I sort of was inspired by Bored to Death, the story, you know, the show where it was based on Jonathan Ames's book, but he's sort of a a novice PI, I think was the premise. Yeah, a novice PI. And he's kind of bad at it and he's bumbling through, but he's got a lot of heart. I kind of wanted it to have this sort of Chinatown vibe. Like I'm a back office journalist, you know, bringing these things back to life, like a little schlocky, a little on the nose. I just thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> but it's important it, in these times, certainly. Yeah, I just, I, I, I was, I was kind of true crimed out, and it just, I don't know, it felt like a fun subversion on the genre. But in terms of the numbers, I haven't seen them for season two, but I did see that it was, you know, number one in its category for a little bit, and I'm just so pleased. I, I think everyone knows what it's like to want something and get it or not get it. And that's like a narrative that we can all get behind over and over again. When you fall, you know, in love with the people and you want them to succeed or you think their idea is stupid and you don't want it, you know, like whatever it is, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to get the gist once you listen to a couple, I hope. Speaking on a personal level, how has being a journalist and being a podcaster impacted how you view the world? Mm. I don't know. I, I think it's the other way around. I think I've always viewed the world like this and podcasting and journalism just lets me talk about it and have a point of view and be an authority. I don't, I don't think I aspire. I mean, of course, sometimes the topics are outside of my expertise, but if I can't really see something clearly or don't really understand it or believe that I understand it, I I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to write about something like that. Everything that I work on has to feel really important and exciting to me and visual. I have to be able to see it. And if I can't see it, then I, I think I don't, I don't have enough access or um, the ability to talk about it clearly. So I, those stories sort of die for me a little bit. That's interesting that you say visual, given that you're working in an audio medium, although some will say that it is a visual medium. I've, I've heard Ira Glass say that audio is a visual medium, and I've always enjoyed that. Can you... Pick a subject in which you feel best suited to offer expertise and advice to an aspiring journalist and give a piece of advice to that 
particular person. I guess the subject would probably be like women's fashion magazines <laughs> and to someone who still, for whatever reason, feels the way I felt and wants to work in them. I think my advice would be, I mean, yeah, you got to get good at cultivating unique ideas, not just sort of half-baked pitches about a weird subculture. You need your characters. You need to know your point of entry. Why you, why now, where, how, how much will it cost? How long will it take? Like no one these days has time for anything other than basically a perfect pitch is what I'm finding. And if you don't have all this stuff nailed down, then it, I don't think it's ready to go out. Like it needs to be jumping off the page. It's so piping hot. That's how I feel these days. And I, it takes a lot of restraint to not send something off before you've done some legwork, but I think it really makes a difference. As someone who's done freelance work, but also has been the person at the magazine fielding the queries, like if something is not there yet, or the writing's already bad, or it's poorly written, or it's clearly copy and pasted, or whatever it is, you have the wrong magazine title, like I'm not going to want to take the leap because that sounds like more work for me. So especially with people doing the jobs of what used to be, you know, six or seven different editors, like if you're going to pitch, keep it tight, a paragraph, have a really clear through line, know what you expect. Like that would be my sense. I'm not fielding pitches anymore, but I am writing them and I, they're, they're getting better and better. What about advice that you would have for a, an aspiring podcaster? Mm. I feel like my podcast journey is kind of not, I came in at such an interesting level. Like I, I, everything just kind of got handed to me. So I feel like that's not a fair comparison for someone who's like, all right, I'm going to make a podcast about something I'm really passionate about. I'm going to put it out and I don't care if anyone listens to it. And then, you know, it gets really big and it's a huge deal. Like the Mandy met me or even normal gossip, like those being self-grown smashes. I've always had a leg up. So I sort of, I don't know. I don't know what I can offer. I always feel like. Uh, what about in the writing of them? I think the best thing for me, even in like doing this interview, you know, when I would work at Condé Nast or Hearst, you know, we, we did some media training and I did some TV and stuff. And so I would be really careful about everything I said, really careful. And I don't have to do that anymore. So, you know, finding your voice, knowing what you like to sound like, what your cadence is, what your personality is. I think it probably should resemble who you are in the real world because that's where it's going to feel like they're getting something that's true and authentic. So I think with my projects through Audio Chuck, Ashley has always encouraged me to just like, if I say something funny off the cuff in conversation, she's like, dude, use that. Like be yourself, do it the way that it sounds good to you. Just really trusting that your, I don't know, your patter and your rhythm and your inflection, that all of that is unique and interesting and not to override it with too much programming. All right. Last question. Uh, yeah. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you're not affiliated with that you would like to salute for their good work since we've saluted you for yours? I love New York Magazine. Oh my God. I am such a fan. I think every month or I guess they're bi-monthly, just every issue is brilliant. They've been able to keep it fresh and interesting and regional somehow while also expanding coverage to include all kinds of stuff like I love Curbed. I love Strategist. I'm a huge fan from afar. 
Justine Harmon. The podcast is killed. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.